On May 16, 1986, in the quiet rural town of Cokeville, Wyoming, a deranged couple named Doris and David Young entered the community's elementary school with an arsenal of weapons and a gasoline bomb. They took those inside hostage and detonated the bomb in the first grade classroom. Although the events that occurred on this fateful day were burned into the memories of the survivors, this story slowly started to become what the town refers to as the Cokeville Miracle. Survivors began to tell stories that paint a clear picture of angels, prayer, and the love of God. You are about to hear the true stories from some of these children, now adults, that were there that day. Stay tuned for Destination Mysteries, Case File 18. listening to Mystery Media Group. Yay! Hello, I'm Melissa with Ghost Girl Memoirs. I'm Mike with Paranormal Treasure Hunter, and you are listening to Destination Mysteries. We believe the paranormal is all around us, and every destination is an adventure. We never know what we're going to find in our adventure, but we do know that we'll have an interesting story to tell when we return. We're not going to the same locations or telling the same stories that you've heard over and over. Most of our destinations will be in locations you've never thought to look or investigate or explore. We are here to bring exciting and spooky new content, and we hope you will join us in our journey toward discovering the truth. One such adventure turned out to be the small town of Cokeville, Wyoming. We were able to go to the school where the bombing occurred and interview one of the staff members who worked there during the time of the bombing and still works there today. She recalls the events in vivid detail and attests to the fact that this incident was a true miracle that changed the town of Cokeville forever. The history we've collected regarding Cokeville and its events came from those we interviewed and wyominghistory.org, a project of the Wyoming State Historical Society. There were about 500 people living in Cokeville in 1986, and slightly more than 100 students attended the elementary school. There are a few of those students who are with us today. We've got Val, Jeremy, and Brad, and they are going to talk to us about their experience during this time. Before we get into that, I want to give you a brief history. David and Doris Young were the couple that broke into the small school in 1986 and placed the bomb in the classroom. David attended Chandron State College in Nebraska, and he earned a degree in criminal justice. He was hired as Cokeville's town marshal in the early 1970s but was dismissed after his six-month probationary period. Doris Waters was David's second wife, and they met in Cokeville. After they married, they moved to Tucson, Arizona. At that time, Doris's daughter, Bernie, and David's youngest daughter, Princess, were living with them. Doris took on part-time jobs to support the family, while David focused on his writing. His writing was titled, Zero Equals Infinity. While living in Tucson, David came up with the biggie plan to get rich quick. 
This plan involved his friend Gerald Epp and Doyle Mendenhall. These friends did not know this plan included taking over the Cokeville Elementary School until moments before. This plan included holding each of the children hostage for $2 million apiece and then detonating the bomb, transporting the money and the children to his brave new world where he would be God. When the two friends got wind of this plan moments before the hostage crisis unfolded, they refused to participate. David didn't want them running to the police, so he ordered his daughter Princess and his wife Doris to handcuff the men inside the van. Shortly after entering the school, Princess fled and drove the van with the two men inside to the town hall where she reported her father's plan. In the meantime, David and Doris gathered children, teachers, staff, and visitors in the elementary school into one central location. They crowded 154 people into a small classroom. David sat himself near the center of the room, and Doris went from room to room rounding people up. Once everyone was gathered into the rooms, David distributed his copies of his philosophy Zero Equals Infinity to everyone present. He also sent a copy of the document to President Ronald Reagan, President of the Chandran State College, and other media outlets. The teachers and staff tried to keep the children calm by reading stories, playing games, and praying. After approximately three hours, David connected the bomb to his wife, Doris, and went to the restroom, which was attached to the classroom. Doris accidentally triggered the bomb by moving her arms, and the explosion engulfed her in flames. It burned many of the nearby children. When David emerged from the bathroom to find his wife in excruciating pain, he shot and killed her. Teachers and staff frantically got the children out of the building as fast as they could by escaping through windows and nearby exits. David shot John Miller, the music teacher, in the back as he was trying to escape. David then returned to the restroom where he shot himself. The only two fatalities were David and Doris. Everyone else survived, including the music teacher. 79 children were taken to nearby hospitals for treatment from burns and smoke inhalation, and in the coming weeks, stories began to emerge of guardian angels seen by the children in the prayer circles they formed. Many recount the angels surrounding them and protecting them as the bomb exploded. Many also recount being led out of the building by those angels. To this day, it is a mystery how this bomb didn't kill everyone in the room. There have been many newspaper articles, books, documentaries, and movies including the most recent movie titled The Cokeville Miracle, which came out in 2015. In the credits of this movie, you will see many families of the students involved in the incident. Many of their children play roles in the film, and we have three of them here with us today. So were you all born and raised in Cokeville, or can you tell me what brought you to Cokeville? Val, do you want to Well, start? there's no hospital. There's no hospital in Cokeville. So most of us are born in Montpelier, Idaho. But that, um, yeah, we're we're all from there. It's mostly a ranching community. Um, it's tight-knit as far as um, everybody knows everybody. In my research, there was approximately 500 people that lived there during this time. Yeah, Cokeville um, right now, according to the numbers, has 535 people to be exact. <laughs> so there's been a, an increase of 35 so, since yeah. 1986. <laughs> if, you, if you consider that compared to a larger city, you know, yeah, yeah it's it, it's a, it's actually boomed. Um, it, <laughs> it actually went up by a family of five because I moved back there. So oh yeah, there's 500. <laughs> and you live now. you live there now, Brad. 
Yeah, I moved back there just this summer. How do you like it? Well, yeah, I mean, I love Cokeville. There's things about every town or every place you live that are obviously pros and cons. Uh, I think one of the big changes for me, you know, talking about what's going on, having my kids go to the actual school that that happened in is, is a, is a little more different than before, which I never thought would bug me or not, but brings back. But it does, huh? Yeah. Well, I'm think about, if you think about it, yeah, it definitely does. That's, that's why I don't try to think about it. (laughs) I can imagine. Um, my, Mike and I actually went to Cokeville this summer to check out the town. And we were able to interview one of the teachers there. She was there during the incident and still works there. And so that was kind of fun to talk to her and some of the people there. And we really enjoyed the little town. We had a picnic in the park and um, took some pictures of the really cool old buildings and stuff and just had a really good, nice atmosphere to it, I thought. What was it like growing up there? Well, for me, um, Cokeville was, like, like we were saying, it's a, it's a tight-knit town, um, very family-orientated. Um, very religious town too. Out of that town, it's it is actually primarily LDS. But the town is very, like I say, very close, very family community, very faith oriented. I mean, even the ones that were Catholic or that ran that went to the other churches were pretty active in their religions, which was pretty cool. I just think it's a it's a highly spiritual, God fearing, whatever you want to, however you want to word it. Melissa, I'd like to add that growing up, you felt free to live there. You rode your bike around, you played, everything felt safe. And the kids just kind of felt like they owned the town because you could do whatever you wanted to. Basically, you didn't have to worry about bad guys at the time when I was growing up. So everything was just really shocked to our town when that happened. One thing I I tell tell a lot of people is Cokeville was kind of a community-based parenting I mean, any parent saw something you shouldn't be doing or maybe you could be doing or whatever. I mean, they were involved is what I'm saying. Everybody was kind mm-hmm. of involved. But yeah, we had a lot of freedom and that was the, that is the one of the best parts of living in a mm-hmm. small town. How do you remember this day going or how did your day start out? We were fifth grade. I was 11 years old at the time. And uh, I remember the day being like a really sunny, nice day. And we, um, I was getting ready for school and my mom sent us out the door. and. I ended up going to getting to the school and just, it was just a regular day, just showing up to school. And we did our normal activities. We had recess and it was, it was basically shortly after recess when this whole incident happened. The reality is uh, that morning, I remember it really sunny. It was a, it was a beautiful, really kind of almost a cloudless day. It was pretty bright, still cold. It's Cokeville, but it was an eventful year. That was the year that, uh, we watched the shuttle go up and explode. That's remember right. I remember that, that happened. We watched that live. Um, that's kind of part of my story because that's some of the thoughts and feelings I had at the time. I kind of thought, well, I guess getting it blown up is not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were in fifth grade too, Brad? Yeah. And Val, you, you were, were in high school, correct? I was in high school. But my my house was right next to the school. The road to the elementary school split my yard and my grandpa's yard. And um, I actually knew him. I knew David Young when I was a little girl. He was a sheriff in our town, and we'd ride by his house, and he'd sit on his porch with his feet up on the railing and 
flip his twirl his pistol around his finger. We were actually pretty scared of him. When we'd ride our bikes by, we'd cross the street to go past him. He's kind of a scary fella. But when you first realized that he had entered the school and they were gathering the kids up into the schoolroom, what were kind of the thoughts and feelings that were going through your heads as that was happening? I can kind of, I'll just kind of give you a little more of a storyline of it, if that's sure. all right. You bet. So we had just, we had just come in from recess, probably whipping up on the sixth graders in football. We'd determined <laughs> at the time. Uh, our very first class after recess, we actually go straight down into the, the music room, which is also the art room, which is on the up, totally other end of the, of the school. And it's kind of on its own. Uh, no other classrooms are really near it. And so we went down there and that's how we started our day. And uh, Mr. Miller decided that he was going to go get the video camera or the video system to go watch, you know, the concert, the, the concert we had the night before. Yeah. And so he left and um, he didn't return for, for, for a while. So he never did return. He never did return. But because it was a while there, we started uh, shooting rubber bands at each other and start a little war in there. And we, 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 we piled up chairs and we were kind of being kids. And in my scenario, I actually went into the, into the art slash drum storage area when she finally figured out that there was another group of class down there, which was significantly later we were the last class that they, they brought into the room. But anyway, she had cleared the entire room before. Yeah, Doris. 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 Yeah. So she had made her way into the room. Found where you were at. Found, you know, got everybody else out and asked them to leave. She didn't realize we were in that room. We'd hit the bass drum or whatever, or she ended up double checking it. She opened the door on us. Uh, Jeremy says she was actually nice to them when she was inviting them to leave. She wasn't as nice to us. She was more irritated, it, it kind of seemed. Um, like we had done something wrong. And anyway, so she's like, you need to catch up with your class. And we, I started to head down the hallway. Colton was ahead of me and the classroom had already, you know, had already cleared most of the hallway. So they were quite a ways ahead of us. And, uh, at that time, <laughs> of course the bathroom's right there. So I snuck into the bathroom and had to use the bathroom and she decided to come in and collect me there. <laughs> and, uh, I told her that, that, you know, that's not a place for you to be. And uh, we had this little discussion and long story short, I was pretty much the last one in the room because by the time we got down to the end, you know, there's a drinking fountain too. So I had to stop and get a drink at this time. <laughs> so you can kind of tell how I was as a kid, I guess. So when we got about that part, that's when I started really on a spiritual sense. I, I actually recognized right away, right before I got to the room, I could actually feel something was majorly wrong. Um, kind of like the feeling of evil. I don't know how to even put it. I could just, I could just feel it. And as I looked in and could see kids crying and, you know, him sitting there at the table with the bomb and the guns, I recognized right away as being an older student, obviously fifth grade, we were, you know, second oldest is in the school whole school. Anyway, that's kind of where that story is. I'll let Jeremy kind of give you his. So the background of Doris was the wife of David, and those were the two that came into the school with the bomb, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. That's right. So, so for me, the, my story is the same as Brad up to the music room. Basically, we we just got so Doris came into the room like he was talking about, and she came and asked for us to follow her to the second grade room is where this took place. And I remember as we were going down the hallway, and I walked into that room. I, I looked to the left and I saw guns on the wall and I thought to myself, this is a really weird assembly. <laughs> we got guns here. This is kind of strange. Because she told you you were all gathering for an assembly, right? Yeah, she did. She told us that. And I was like, man, this is strange. But so I went into the room and I found a spot near my where my class was and sat down next to him. And that's where I where I sat. Um, and my sister, Julia, she was in it also along with my other sister, Gina, she was there too. But Julia, she, she, she wanted to, she sought out comfort and she found me and she sat with, with me most of the time while we were in the, in that room. And while in that room, it was probably, I would say two and a half hours or so before the bomb was going to go off. But just before that, Julia, my younger sister, she, she got up and left me and went somewhere else into the room. So I'd been sitting there for quite a while and I was just playing some things in front of me. And I had this feeling that I needed to get up and move over towards the window. And it was a really strong feeling. This came over me. And so I, so I stood up and I walked away from the bomb where I was sitting. Cause I was literally probably less than 10 feet from it as I was walking away from it. And was walking up to the, I went to go sit down. And as I went to go sit down, my back was towards the bomb and that's when it went off. So and you moved in the nick of time. I moved in the nick of time. I did. And, and uh, my sister, Julia, she had left me five minutes prior to that. But when I left my spot, she's told me that after I left, she went to go back to find me, but she couldn't find me. And it took her back into a, a farther part of the room just prior to the bomb going off too. So she was away from the bomb far, far enough that it didn't injure her either. I still remember when the bomb went off, it, it actually, the force of it blew me against the wall and I, and I kind of fell to the floor and I remember looking back and seeing the fire in the middle of the room. I don't know if you guys have watched the movie or not. We have. In the movie, in the movie it talks about how, the the boy that was talking how the fl the flame and the fire and everything was taken to the ceiling. I remember looking back and seeing that, of seeing it just go right to the ceiling, and then it just kind of mushroomed out and just dissipated and disappeared. That was basically that point. I knew it got really hot, extremely hot, and I could not breathe very well. And so I, I just in my mind I said I, I knew I just needed to get out. So I found the window that I was next to, and worked my way out. And finally got out. I can probably have Brad kind of tell you what his experience up to that point was for him. And his is his is quite interesting too. Yeah, well, uh, at that point, I had entered that room. When I entered the room, you know, I had noticed a lot of crying, and uh, it wasn't long actually before my thoughts and my feelings at the time had had mainly changed because we had got together in small groups. It's just the way we were taught in Cokeville you know, we, we would start to pray. Jeremy and I talked about this before. I think we probably had 10 to 15 prayers in there during this whole time. Um, some together, some individual. And so I think a lot of our nerves were changing a little bit. What I do remember is um, the gasoline smell. 
it had, it had affected me enough to where I was, I had an upset stomach over it type of a thing. It was giving you a little, you know, being lightheaded. But at, at one point we were getting restless enough and I'm sure my teacher and uh, we, we had a teacher's aide and they were wanting to get some of us kids that were a little more fidgety, decided to bring in the TV. And in, in the movie, you'll notice a part where he gets upset at a teacher and, and he kind of pulls the gun out and kind of waves it around. And anyway, while I was sitting there, I heard a voice that just said, you know, Brad, go to the window. And uh, I turned and, and looked at him and I said, uh, and, he, and he said, what? <laughs> and we kind of had a moment there. And, and then I realized, okay, it wasn't him. I just really felt the spirit heavily on me. And uh, as people say, your goosebumps has goosebumps. The voice spoke to me again and called me by my full name and told me to go to the window. And I obeyed. <laughs> So I, uh, I got up and, uh, I started to walk over to, you know, I got over to the window and, uh, at that point is when I kind of, I don't know, it's kind of hard to share these things cause you know, they're, they're, they're personal. I could tell that we had a presence with us and, uh, the veil was getting thinner for, for a young person. And, and at that point I had got up to the window, I was sitting there at the window. I, w- I was playing with this wood block set. You know, the ones that used to be at dentist's office, where you've got one block, you just can't put it back. And I was messing with this stupid block set right there on that windowsill. And I was a small kid back then, but uh, I could sit actually on the windowsill and still have my feet on the book uh, shelf. One of those, one of those block pieces got knocked out of my hand and uh, it, it wasn't from another kid. It, it, it was just another physical presence that it had basically swiped it out of my hand. It fell down in front of me and I looked down and at that time, Colton kind of jumped down. I thought he jumped down and, and turned. And at that moment, as he turned and I had looked down, the bomb went off. I just remember a really loud bang. And, and at the time I really lost orientation, um, hearing, uh, it was very quiet at the moment, but yet it's super slow in your brain. Is your, my brain had slowed it down. Does that sort of make sense? So it, yeah. it seemed way longer than what it probably really was. Like time slows down. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm noticing that there's these two pair of shoes in front of my face, but they're like really close to me. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I can start recognizing that, you know, it's total black. There's a lot of heat. And then I could see she was on fire. So the really only thing I could really see really good was a person burning, which is horrific for a a young person to watch. And this was Doris, right? It was Doris. Yeah, she had taken a lot of that. And the feet, these feet were in front of me. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I could have pain. I had this and the pain was in my back. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. And what it had done is it actually, as the air was escaping, it actually sucked me out the window rear first. I was stuck between this frame with my neck, head and my neck on the top and my lower part of my legs on the bottom. And my feet were what, what were in front of me. It took me a minute to recognize what was going on. That's kind of when the, the, the volume or the crescendo of volume came up and the, the, the screaming, the sounds of really like a fire. And then the teachers, you know, 
get on the floor, you know, get out, stop, drop, roll, that type of stuff. A lot of this was happening kind of quick. And they're all pushing. All of a sudden, I felt all these hands come up on me, and they're pushing, and they're pushing, and they pushed me right out. And I went out, and it was dark in there. So when I went out and hit the ground, in my mind, I, I thought I, I thought I was dying. Like I was watching this, like, like an out of ex- body experience or something. And I thought, oh, I'm in heaven. I had just like went through right to heaven from this horrible place. And uh, the pain is, I think, was more established at that point. And then I realized this is a crazy thought. But at the time, I thought this is how Krista McAuliffe died. Because a few months before, we watched that in our schools, which is pretty crazy, because that was quite a graphic thing. And uh, it was uh, obviously a big impression on me at the time, because I thought, well, this is how that school teacher died. And it really wasn't that bad. It was some slight pain, but I hadn't recognized I was still alive and it really wasn't that bad. And uh, anyway, at that point, I had, I had recognized I'm alive. I'm good to go. So I got up and I started taking off. I joke around. I said I was the last person in that room. And by golly, I was the first one out. I took off running. I come around the corner by Val's house and Art. And uh, as I turned the corner there, there was just all kinds of people. As a youngster, we were, we were able to read his little life to infinity. And, and he had kind of talked about how there'd be other people around that might be part of. So he, he kind of brainwashed us a little bit. I kind of had this feeling like maybe he had people outside that could shoot us or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, so he not, was, he was telling you all about this big plan that he had, correct? Yeah. He, well, did. he had you in the room. Yeah. Well, anyway, I come around that corner and I just remember all these awesome, big, strong adults, but I could not recognize any of them at the time. Um, So to me, they were just scary. And the only person that really caught my eye, of all people, our chief of uh, fire department, Glenn Walker. Walker. So I I remember he kind of got my attention. I slowed down enough. And then I think people thought, okay, he's he's fine. And then Mr. Miller had fell over right next to me. And he kept saying, my back, I've been shot, my back. They kind of focused on to him and didn't focus on me. They pulled his shirt down and I could see the blood coming out of his back. Mr. Miller was the music teacher that was shot, correct? Yeah, he got, yeah, he was the one that got shot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he was also our teacher at the time. So, right. so anyway, the moment I saw that and then I was like, okay, I'm out of here. So I took off running and I headed to my grandma's house which from the school is a is about three city blocks from where the school sits, but probably two blocks from that intersection from where Val's house is down to grandma's. And uh, I come around and I come through the back door, which is that's how we you entered my grandma's house. She She was getting ready to come to the school and she was getting prepared for that. And it surprised her. I jumped in her arms and uh, she said I about wiped her out, but... You know, a lot of people thought I was actually still in the bombing. My brother did, I think, because when they were looking for me, I was out so quick. They didn't actually know I was out. A lot of parents didn't even recognize me because we had black soot on our faces and different things. And my brother at one time, you know, he was one of those kids that that thought, well, maybe my boy, my brother is still still inside. You know, I need to maybe go back or something. I don't really know how, how that all turned out with him, but that we can, we can ask him one day, but 
that's really kind of what happened to me. So after I had jumped through the window, because I got out after Brad, he was, he was the first through. So after you hit the wall, you were able to jump out the window. Yeah, I, I was able to get to the window, but there was a lot of kids that went out before I did. And there was all, a bunch of kids just in line before me. And so I just started helping kids get through the window. Our teacher, he jumps into the window to work his way out. And uh, you, you saw that part in the movie where this, the guy got his belt stuck on the, his belt got stuck, stuck on, on the, the window latch. I watched that all happen. And I was, I was like, man, he, he's got to get out of here and he's stuck and I'm stuck here. And so you, in your mind, you start freaking out quite a bit. And I, I knew I had to get out. It was hot and miserable. And a bunch of his people, a bunch of kids just grabbed his feet and kind of pulled on him. And then his belt latch loosed. And then he just fell through the window. And then we all started coming out and he was standing there just helping us all get out as soon as he got out and was telling us to run down the street and head down towards main street. That's where the help would be. And so we headed down to the main street and I remember coming around the corner and that was the part where Brad, he saw Mr. Miller on the ground. Well, they were attending to Mr. Miller at the time as I was approaching that scene. And then I also saw a bunch of kids right there on the lawn, they had kids that were burnt the worst and they were, they were actually putting cold water on them on the lawn there. And I remember seeing that and just going, Oh, well, how did they get burnt? And I didn't, you know, and, uh, I just felt really bad for them, but they directed me to the Tater's house where I went in there just to wait for my parents to show up or someone who, um, would come and get us as kids because I once I got to that spot I first thing I wanted to do is find my my two sisters and as soon as I located them and we all went to the Taters home and just waited in their living room actually at the time I could say this my my parents they were in Ogden when this is all happening and they turned on the radio and got word on the radio that this whole hostage situation was happening in the Coalfield Elementary School and so, they don't usually listen to the radio either. Yeah, no, my dad, my mom and dad, they're not radio listeners, but my dad just had the feeling to turn it on. And so he turned it on and uh, they were still doing errands, you know, in Ogden and, and doing some shopping. And they had to go to um, a certain building. That's why they're in Ogden doing it. They hurried. Once they heard that, my mom freaked out, obviously. They sped home as fast as they could. So the only guardian or, or parent figure that we had in town at the time was my sister, Jennifer. And they let the high school out early, obviously, and they were all um, waiting. And my sister Jennifer found us in the Taters' home. He got us all kids together, and they were actually trying to transport people with the ambulances to different hospitals. And we were some of the last ones to get to go to the hospital, so we had to wait for an ambulance. And then, as soon as we got an ambulance, my my sisters and I, and, and my older sister Jennifer, we all were transported in the ambulance to the Montpelier Hospital. I only sustained a burn on the back of my arm and the back of my neck, and my sister Gina and Julia, they didn't have any burn at all, but they just had smoke inhalation like I did. But my parents, trying to remember, they found a payphone, and they ended up calling the Wilds, and they, they asked what was going on, my parents did, and so what they ended up doing is finding out that I was sent to in an ambulance to Montpelier Hospital, where my parents just ended up meeting us there. I mean, from that point on, I, the experience didn't really ever bother me too bad. I didn't have any, like, after-experience trauma or anything. Nightmares. Nightmares or anything like that. 
but I, I, I sustained a lot of my, my experience. I sustained a lot of, I was in shock at the time. I uh, had smoke inhalation and a lot of my suffering came from right after the bomb happened. And so that's what happened to me as far as the experience and everything. Um, Jennifer, his sister was my age. So we're talking a freshman in high school being responsible for three of her younger siblings in a situation where it's never happened before. So there's no lockdown plans. Nobody knew what it was total chaos. Cause they didn't, now they have plans. These things happen. They have plans where to go find your kids. It was a house across the street who would know to go find them, but I can't imagine the responsibility Jennifer felt there trying to take care of her younger siblings and you know what we're doing. I mean, what are we 15 when we're freshmen in high school, 15, yeah. 16. So I, I can't imagine that responsibility she felt at that time. And, and a lot of the information everybody was getting was from the radio. And because we didn't have all the wonderful cell phones and a lot of that information was being construed. Um, I was in Casper, Wyoming. They had taken our team. We were there for track and they took our team and put us in a hotel room the conference room or the hotel room. And I'm sitting there with a coach. She's got kids in there. I'm sitting there. One of our assistant coaches, dad was the principal and everything they were telling us on the radio, they were saying that, oh my gosh, I've just been shot. Well, what he said is, oh my gosh, the bomb went off. And then they're saying the kids are being blown out of windows. That's what we're hearing in this conference room. And they were shoving the kids out of the window. So a lot of the parents that were hearing the information, like Jeremy's parents hearing this, they like hearing the worst of the worst. And and also like Brad Shane did, he ran home. A lot of the kids ran away and some of them actually sustained more burns by doing that because they didn't get medical attention right away. They were scared and ran to grandma's house or the safest place they knew. I can't even imagine being a parent and being away and listening to that okay. on the radio. So, uh, especially when it's yeah. So it, I, I, I want to tell you a little bit about my parents too. There's their situation. So my mom, she works, she worked over at a dental office in Montpelier, Idaho. And she was just at the end of work or some, I can't remember exactly where people around her were like, man, that's crazy. What's going on in Cokeville. And she's like, what's going on in Cokeville, you know? she hears about this bombing. And so she runs over to her mom's, which is my grandma. And uh, they're talking, they, they're kind of not knowing what to do. And they decide, well, we're going to drive to Cokeville. So they get in the car and they take off maybe 15 miles into the drive and the bombing goes off and the radio guys are doing all of this extra commentary, commentary that is not really actually happening. I, I know there's a few people who said that they actually mentioned that there were bodies everywhere. And, uh, That's and, what we were and, hearing. and to have a, a mother hear that. And I mean, I can't imagine what was going through her brain and they had to pull over because she was driving. My grandma wasn't. And, well, and even Montpelier is how far away from Cokeville, at least about 30 miles. Okay. So even that's far away. Yeah. When your kids in that situation, it sure is. So everybody was a ways away. Yeah. I mean, so my dad, he was driving the bus for this, for the seniors, for some seniors that were doing a senior sneak out in Salt Lake. So he wasn't around either. So it was kind of, so I didn't have any, anything or anyone around. I, I knew that they really weren't there. I knew the safe place would be to go to grandma's. But anyway, so my mom, she's listening to the radio. She's pretty much losing, losing her mind over this. And they're talking about how they've got injured kids and burnt kids. And they're taking them to 
Montpelier and they're taking him to Star Valley and they're taking him to Logan and they're taking him to Evanston Kimmer. and they're taking him to Kemmer. And so she's sitting here going, well, what do I do? Is my kids coming here or do I, you know, so they sat on this road yelling at each other, trying to figure out what do we do? What do we do? You know? And they ended up coming to Coville, which was good because Greg and them that we had gone to grandma's by this time. We had smoke inhalation, you know, some bruises and scratches for me on that window situation, but uh, really we weren't too bad. They wanted us to go to the do- to the hospital, but we, you know, I wanted to just stay with grandma. I didn't care about a doctor at that point. On the flip side, my dad, they're in Evanston when he, they're fueling, uh, he's fueling up and the kids are getting drinks or whatever inside this gas station. And they had, he was a, as a bus driver we use the star Valley buses. So they say star Valley on the side because the bus that we normally used was inoperable. Track. So I was going to say, or maybe a track with me. Yeah. yeah it was probably a track or something. <laughs> but anyway, the crazy thing is, is the guy turns and he says, man, it's pretty sad. What's going on with your neighbors. And my dad goes, what do you mean? My neighbors? And he says, Cokeville. He says, what? Cokeville what? What's, you know, and they had this little back and forth and he says, well, the bombing. He goes, what? So he goes into this gas station and pretty much yells at everybody to get in the bus. We're leaving. <laughs> well, they all get on the bus and he's got that thing pegged. Of course, he's got to keep kids safe driving too. So he's kind of got this dual thing going on and they've turned the radio on, but they've kind of got it up front. I don't know if they had a personal little radio or what, but they they weren't really wanting to scare everybody, but my dad said at that point, the entire senior class was all all up hunched around this speaker system that's up in the front of this stupid bus, and they were listening to it, and they got almost to border when the bomb actually went off. Can you ima- imagine listening to the radio as your only source, and it's really not that accurate? It's not given correct information. Everybody in that hotel room had either children or siblings in that. And yeah, they did say that they said kids are being blown out the window. There's bodies everywhere. It was pandemonium. Yeah, it was. And and, uh, I think making assumptions that, Oh, this has got to be bad. So we're going to just throw out some stuff. And, and it wasn't what they said it was. Hey, the media is the same as it was back then. (laughs) Imagine that. Hold on, hold on. What what did they say? False media? (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't changed much. Yeah, so we haven't gone a long way since 1986. So So when you were in the classroom um, and you knew, you know, something was going down, you saw the guns and the bombs and you, you said you felt like an evil presence there. Can you describe any other sort of thoughts or feelings that were going through your head? Like, were you just scared the whole time or did you have any sort of presence of uh, calmness or anything come over you at any point during that? I want to say it was roughly two to three hours that you were in that classroom, right? Yeah, we were, we were less because we were the last class. Okay. So I'm, we're probably less time in there. When I got there, I, I felt I could feel the pure evilness. Like I, I just knew something serious was going on. I got inside. I, I wasn't in very long, honestly, before probably the first prayer from that moment. I wouldn't say easy street, of course. I mean, I, I thought maybe I might not see my mom and dad ever again. But spiritually, I think I was pretty good right when we started watching TV. I think I got a little preoccupied there. I knew I was safe after after I had been told to go to the window. Like I said, at that point, 
the veil for me, that's the best way to explain it for me is, and I could really feel the presence of the angels that were there. Honestly, that was the first time I really felt uh, nothing's going to happen. Not, yeah, at peace. Nothing's going to happen. I know I've mentioned this once before. I don't really try to bring it up too much, but I, I you could kind of see movement in the room that wasn't other kids, if that sort of makes sense. Like I said, the veil got thin for some of us. And, and I don't know why some of us had different situations versus another one. I think mine, God knew he needed to talk to me directly. I was that kind of wild child, I guess, maybe that, no, I felt really at peace through most of it. There were a few horrific moments. I mean, honestly, when the guns pointed at you, well, it was pointed at my teacher, but when it's pointed right at his belly and you're at his belly height, it's like at your face. So, I mean, I remember thinking that was pretty rough and raw and I didn't feel very safe. And, uh, you know, we had, we had angels watching us. We, we were being protected and uh, there's no doubt of it. I am not a perfect person. I'm not the most religious person in the world, but there's that definitely happened that day for sure. And I think as youthful kids, and just being from a town where you're, you go to church every day or every week, you, you pray daily, you, you do all these things that we've been taught. We were way more connected, you know, and we were closer, have a lot of good memories of all those spiritual situations. And so that's easier for me to focus on. Now, granted, I have a lot of other memories of that. If I wanted to focus on it, I could make it horrific. I could sit and wallow and not want to leave my house and, but I owe it to myself and to the people around me to not be like that, to, to find the good in the situation and to not sit and focus and dwell on, you know, it, it's sort of like times today, you know, people are upset over or, or whatever it might be. And in reality, that's really kind of somewhat out of our control. And as long as we're staying close to the Lord, it doesn't really matter because he's going to take care of it all anyway. So. Thank you for sharing that. Jeremy, did you have any anything that you were feeling during that time that you might want to add? For me, you know, that the, the time I, I was talking about when I had the feeling to get up and move, I, I didn't necessarily see or have, have an experience where I saw an angel, but I had a feeling come over me that I needed to move and move immediately. And actually during that whole time, even, even when I walked into the room, I was scary at first, but this feeling of peace always came over me. And I didn't feel like that day I was going to be leaving this earth. I didn't feel like that. So Mrs. Clark, and she had left a baby in her car to take a little kindergartner into the school. And so she had asked if she could go out and get her baby. So she ended up still being there as a parent, not a school teacher. But she described to us that David Young had, um, you know, he's a mastermind of this plan. And he felt all powerful and controlled. And then at some point, she saw him lose a bit of that control. And some say he was a diabetic and he might have been having kind of a diabetic reaction or whatever. But others, uh, including Mrs. Clark, she said that's when she felt like Jesus entered the room. And Jesus and Satan can't be in the same room at the same time. And she felt that that's when he lost his control, kind of, and went and take the break in the bathroom. She felt like that that's when 
a peaceful feeling came to her and she felt like she, she flat out said she felt like Jesus entered the room and she, she felt like the, the evil left the room. Like he, he couldn't have the power and control that he had had before. And there's, there's stories in that corner where the flagpole was of, um, kind of an image of perhaps Jesus. That's what Mrs. Clark shared with us. And I actually, you could see that because everything had smoke damage and, but in there, that one little spot. And I, I wasn't in the building at the time, but I sure was in the building a lot afterwards because I was part of the cleaning up crew. Um, so I did see that. And I did hear that story from Mrs. Clark that she had said that she just felt this um, calming peace come over. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of what we had all felt too and especially me especially towards the end when he had left the room like Valerie was saying he got up to go to the restroom and uh, and had his wife take over the bomb if you'd see the movie you saw all that and uh and that was when the bomb went off when she had possession of the bomb at the time and that was when all those feelings and, and I think a lot of the angels intervened at that point and uh helped kids get to where they needed to be in the room so they would be hurt less and not be killed uh, for the whole time. I wasn't overly scared, but that was when peace came over me. And I just knew that that was not going to be the last day I was on earth. I ended up getting out the window and down the street and found my sisters at that point. So Jeremy, you described the the smoke kind of going up into the ceiling instead of spreading out around the room. Mm-hmm. I heard a story and I don't remember if it was from the movie or not, but where some kids said that angels actually surrounded that bomb and protected them from that spreading out across the room. Did you hear anything like that or know of anybody who may have said something to that effect? Yeah. um, Well, in the movie, it does explain that. And the movie, if you take the movie, the movie's actually done very accurately according to the stories that have been told. From all the movies, that's the best one, isn't it? It is. That's what I've heard, yeah. Well, C.C. Christensen had the permission to do a lot of the storytelling that he did, putting a little drama here and there in it, but he told it as accurate as he could, and probably 95% accurate that movie was as far as the true event and what happened. And in that movie, that's what I remember seeing, but in that movie... He describes it seeing that the angels took it up to the ceiling. And that is exactly what I heard from different people and also in this story in the movie. And with me looking back and seeing that happen, it confirms to me that I know that's what happened. I didn't see the angels, but I knew that that's what happened. When they went back in like, you know, investigation and everything, weren't they quite surprised that the bomb didn't cause more damage than it had? Everything he had planned out and he had set off those bombs out in the desert before, made sure they worked and worked and worked and tried it and tried it and tried it. Even the bombs, bombs had shotgun shells in them and they were supposed to go out and even, you know, if the fire didn't kill the kids, the shotgun shells were supposed to. And they went straight up into the ceiling and didn't ricochet because it was kind of that soft ceiling that you see in schools. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, I know, too, that there were a lot of kids that told stories of relatives that came to, like, show them out of the building or, you know, relatives that had passed on. And parents had gone back and let the children look at, like, their photo albums and stuff. And they were able to pick out, you know, if it was their grandma or their aunt or whoever. And it was quite surprising to a lot of the parents because they had never seen these relatives before. They were too young when the relatives had passed on. Do you know anybody who had experiences like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we know who they are. 
what's amazing about this is to understand that it is your family that takes care of you. That is your guardian angels. It's the closer people, you know, it happened to be for that scenario to be our guardian angels. You know, I don't know who, who spoke with me. Um, I, I honestly felt the spirit so strong at the time. I, I've told many people it, it could have been Jesus himself for all I know. It was extremely spiritual. And, and the ones that had seen it, they've had a you know, it is an amazing story. And they didn't know who they were. And they didn't really find out who they were till later. It wasn't like they said, well, let's just open up books and start looking. It was sort of on accident how they found who they were. You know, it wasn't like a, a super planned thing. Right. So this, it took a while for them to figure out who, who was what. I think it was 70 something percent of us had all had moved to the window. A crazy stat. We all got out of that, that 70 percent went out that window in 90 seconds, even for a small room. There's things that we didn't recognize at the time that we can look back and, and recognize it. Like, for example, all the false fire alarms we had. We had a lot of false fire alarms. And I used to joke around and tell my parents, I think that place is buried on an Indian burial. Um, <laughs> they would come and they would try to look for a fire. They couldn't find a fire. And the alarm would go off an hour or two later. And we would do drill after drill after drill. And honestly, that's that was Heavenly Father preparing us. I mean, imagine 70% of 150 whatever people going out a window and doing it in 90 seconds. That's crazy. There was very few that, I mean, we had kind of congregated to where we all needed to be to make this work the way it worked. We would have never have got there without, without the angels help us. Directing work. The, the reality is we'll never get there. How do you think this incident changed the way you look on life now? I think it does. But like I try to tell everybody, it doesn't change your natural human thoughts or, or things you do. Um, it's personality. not, yeah, it, it doesn't personality. change your personality, but what it does, it's an experience that you can, you can lean back on, you can use in your life and you can use it for good or evil. I mean, you can focus on nothing, but I mean, if I wanted to, I could focus on being blown out the window, the pain I had, um, I could sit and focus on all the negative and make everyone around me miserable or, I could hear out the good from it and what I can and, and just and make a change. Well, the reality is there was so much spiritual that happened that I think a majority of people have done very well. The reality is, is you're still human. You're mm -hmm. still going to make mistakes. You're still, but it is something you can fall back on. There's definitely no way that Jeremy and I could ever say that God doesn't exist. Angels don't exist. That's an impossible thing. I, I could never, I could never state that. Those are things that we know are true, just as true as turning the light switch on and it works and whatever. And so it definitely reaffirmed your belief that we have an afterlife and that we have a specific purpose, maybe that of why we're here and uh, your relatives and loved ones look after you when they pass on. Oh, yeah, it's definitely true. This isn't the end. The earth is not the end of our life. Um, it's just a, a, a down here. We're down here to. Temporary try to state. live this temporary state. We try to live and be obedient to God's commandments and, and work hard to try to return to him again and be with our relatives, those who are there who've already passed on. It For me, it affirmed the faith I already had, the faith that reassured me that what I feel now, even, I felt the same then, 
and that everything that I had felt then and, and heard stories of what people had seen, I knew was true. I knew that all those things happened. I knew at that point, I, and I knew for sure that we had a God who does love us, who understands us, who is there to protect us in times like that. Now, miracles like this don't always happen. It, it doesn't. You take Sandy Hook. There's kids that were shot and killed there. and But there's also spiritual experiences that came out of that for some people. You know, like Brad was saying, it's how you look at it. Um, Brad and I have chosen to look at it in the miracle side of this whole thing and 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 give our our perspective on what happened for us and portray those feelings that we had because we know that through us, me and Brad, God can speak through us and the spirit can be felt from what we have shared and people can change because of it. And that's why we want to share it. God lives and there are people who watch over us who have gone before us. We really appreciate you sharing that story with us, even though a lot of it was personal. I think it's going to be very helpful to a lot of people out there who have questions and don't know what the afterlife might bring for them. So I appreciate you sharing that. I would like to say when uh, what it did to the community just affirmed why David Young chose it in the first place. He wanted to make a brave new world. He wanted the children of Cokeville because they came from good, strong people. They had um, good faith and have good, strong kids. This happened and the town came together. I mean, it just reaffirmed what he believed as far as them being the best of the best. They, um, The town came together and showed what they do for their children and how much their children mean to them and their lives are, their faith is. I think it just brought the town together that way. Yeah, they were saying in some of his journals that uh, he really, he chose the town because he thought of the purity of the children is what he had put. And that's that's why he picked us. It also shows you that Satan's real and he wants to attack the pure. Um, one thing that we've that we've kind of spoken of, this really isn't about a religion as much as as much as it's about God. It's about there are loving Heavenly Father that has angels that are going to protect you. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what religion or how you believe. There is a God. He's here for you. And, you know, there is a Satan and he's going to try to do the opposite. Focus on what what you can. And, and Heavenly Father is always stronger. He proved it that day. Before we go, we'd like to play a trailer from our friends at Lore and Legends podcast. Do you like lore, legend, mythology, folk tales or fairy tales? And the philosophy that might be behind some of them? Well, if you do, you should check out Lore and Legends podcast. Lore and Legends explores humanity's past, present, and future through the lens of lore and legends built up by dominant cultures like ancient Egypt, Greece, and more forgotten and ignored groups like the Native Americans or tribal Africans, as well as modern myths, legends, and phenomena from Bigfoot to UFOs to psychic powers and even religions. So check out Lore and Legends wherever you get your podcasts. Destination Mystery is a production of Mystery Media Group. You can find our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy our show, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We will be introducing other Mystery Media Group guests in our upcoming episodes, along with weekly bonus material. 
If you like to see more pictures and evidence from our adventures, visit www.destination-mystery.com. You'll find a link to our blog, as well as a link for merch and contact information. Until next time, find your own destination. Solve the mystery. This is a production of Mystery Media Group. Yay!